37, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 11 of this chapter, Genesis chapter 37, beginning our reading together in verse 1, Genesis 37 and verse 1. Verse 1 says, And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, My sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it to his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked them and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to our hearts this morning. Now the more observant among you will have noticed that we have bypassed Genesis chapter 36. And that's because chapter 36 is really a parenthetical chapter. It's a chapter which gives the record of Esau's descendants. If you go back there, you can read it's a series of one name after another. And it has its place in the word of God because it shows us how God kept his promises to Esau and to his descendants and how the Arab nations evolved out of the family of Esau. But the primary focus of this part of the book of Genesis is to pursue Jacob and his sons, and in particular, the spotlight of Scripture falls upon the life of Joseph. Now, you might say, of all of Jacob's sons, why would God, at this point, single out Joseph? Well, there's four good reasons for that. First of all, the story of Joseph explains how the Hebrews wound up in Egypt and how they went from being a large family to becoming a small nation, the nation of Israel. It also presents proof positive to us of the providence of God. Because unlike Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you'll not find God appearing unto Joseph. But rather he speaks to Joseph through dreams. And and then he moves the events along in his providence, performing his own goodwill through circumstance and situation. Then thirdly, this section of the book sets before us the godly example of Joseph. Shows us his great attitude in most adverse of circumstances. 
He's tremendously mistreated from beginning to end of his life, really. And yet with all, he never complains. Not even once do you find Joseph raising a complaint about his mistreatment. And fourthly, it provides us with the most comprehensive type of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament. Now Joseph, you'll recall, is the firstborn son of Jacob by Rachel. And by now Rachel has died. She died, if you recall, giving birth to Benjamin. And Joseph was around 15 years of age when his mother passed away. So as a rather young man, a young boy really, he was bereft of his mother at an early age. And he's become something of an isolated figure in the family home. His brothers have no time for him. In part because he has been especially favoured as Jacob's son, or as Rachel's son. And we've seen that even going back to the time of the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. You remember how that as Jacob was approaching Esau, he put Rachel and Joseph to the back of the caravan trail. So that if there was a massacre, that Joseph and his mother would have been protected more than the other children. And so this was something that the older children had evidently taken note of. And so they they resented him because of the favoritism that was shown toward him. And they resented him because of his dreams. So he's an interesting character. And as I say, he's a type of the Lord Jesus because on the one hand, he is greatly loved and favored of his father. But on the other hand, he is loathed by his own kith and kin, by his brethren. Now in Genesis, as Genesis 37 unfolds, we see clearly uh, how this develops. And uh, you know, what a, what a dysfunctional home this was. And so we're going to dig into uh, Joseph's life and the, the account of his life and see what we can discover. And I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 1 to 4, his father's devotion. It says, And Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old, was feeding the flock of his brethren, and his lads was with, and, and, the, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, and with the sons of Silpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colours. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. And could not speak peaceably unto him. So about two years have passed by since Rachel died. He's now 17 years of age. And Joseph is out in the field with the sons of Bilhah and Silpah. Namely, Adan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. And these boys were probably closer to his own age than the other brothers who were quite a bit older than Joseph. And it seems that all five of them were assigned to work in the field together. Remember, this is a shepherding family. And uh, Joseph, uh, once he is out in the field with them, it seems he doesn't have a shepherding role. He has an overseeing role. And that's intimated by the gifting to him of this famous coat. And it's also, as a consequence of that, of him being made an overseer, we find he brings a report to his father of his brother's dealings out on the field. Verse 2 calls it their evil report. Now, Bible teachers differ as to whether or not Joseph was at fault in bringing such a report. Some suggest that he was a tale-bearer and this was a flaw in his character and that he brought a deceitful and antagonistic report concerning the other men. 
And certainly tail-bearing is not an attractive feature in anybody's life. The Bible says the words of a tail-bearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. But if one has, as Joseph had, a, shall we say, a junior management role, then he has a duty to report. And it seems to me that knowing what we know about Joseph's character, that he wasn't just being self-serving and bringing this report. He wasn't ingratiating himself to his father and and further isolating his brothers uh, from his dad but he's just doing what he was asked to do he was given this coat he was it was symbolic of his position and he was acting in his position as the foreman uh, among all of his brothers and he was coming back and he was sharing with his father concerns about the nature of their work you know maybe they weren't being as attentive to the flock as he thought they could have been. Or maybe they weren't putting in the R's as he thought they should have had. And so he brings this report. Now it's not so much the activity of verse 2 that creates the problem for Joseph as the details of verse 3. Because in verse 3 we read that Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Now that is a, a damning indictment upon the parenting of Joseph. And yet, you know, as we said, this is no new thing. As Rachel's firstborn son, Joseph has always been the blue-eyed boy of the family. He's always had uh, favor. But there's another thing here, and we see that it's not just because he's Rachel's son, but also he was the son of Jacob's old age. That's what it says there in verse 3. He was the son of his old age. And, uh, you know, as people grow older, they mellow with the years. You know, I, I look at how I treat my grandchildren in comparison to my children. I'm sure many of you can identify with this. And you're much kinder to your grandchildren than you were with your children. Isn't that not the case? I mean, you let, the, you let your grandchildren off with murder virtually. Uh, but, you know, with your children, you were much more, uh, you know, disciplined and on top of things and, you know, setting them right at every, every opportunity. And, you know, as I, look, as I look at my relationship with my grandchildren and I reflect upon my relationship with my own children, I think to myself that perhaps I should have been at times a little more lenient, a little more gracious. I should have allowed them to grow and allowed them to make a few mistakes along the way. And there's probably some of that in the relationship between Jacob and Joseph. <coughs> Excuse me. Joseph is the son of his old age. And probably in comparison to his dealings with Reuben and the older brothers, you know, he was being treated a little bit more leniently. There was a little bit more kindness. There was a little bit more grace. And the older brothers, knowing how they were brought up, were probably looking at that and, and thinking, well, you know, why is he being treated so differently? And they, they resented the fact that his father's love was set upon him in particular. And, and not only did he love him more, but of course he gifted him with this special famous coat, the coat of many colors. Now, when we're told this story as children in Sunday school or in children's meetings, we're often given the impression that Joseph's brothers uh, envied him because of how pretty his coat was or how beautiful it was. It was a lovely coat and so on. And they wanted a nice coat like that. But that's not really what this is about at all. This is not a question of fashion. You know, they're not upset because he has a, a nice coat. That's not the thing that bothers them. Quite literally, this is a long-sleeved tunic. And it was the kind of garment that was worn by a tribal chieftain. In other words, he was made the boss. You know, can you imagine this? I I grew up in a house of four sons. And uh, when my parents would go out, automatically, my eldest brother was put in charge. He was told, you know, to 
keep us under control and he was in charge till they got back. But can you imagine what it would have been like if my youngest brother had been put in charge? We would have been laughing. We would have been saying, what in the world are you thinking of leaving this wee lad in charge? Sure, we're just going to run over the top of him. And yet that's what went on in Jacob's home. Essentially, Joseph is put in charge. And he's given this garment, this coat, that symbolizes his status and his position within the hierarchy of the brothers. Now, you'll recall that Reuben, the eldest son, had sinned against his father by sleeping uh, with, his, uh, with Rachel's handmaiden, Bilhah. And, and this he did because Rachel having passed away, he feared that, Le- that uh, Bilhah would be given the prime position in the, in the matriarchal hierarchy, if you like, that she would have been number one wife now. And he didn't want his own mother to be subject again to second place in the home. And so he deliberately, as an act of politics within the family, lay with Bilhah so as to put a wedge between her and his father Jacob. But the consequence of that was that he forfeited his right as Jacob's firstborn son. You see, when he lay with Bilhah, he con- the consequence was that, that the role that should have fallen to him as the eldest son and the blessings and the privileges that would have went with that are now passed on. And this coat being handed to Joseph very publicly is saying, Joseph is my golden child. Joseph is the blue-eyed boy. Joseph is now the official firstborn son and he will receive all the double blessing and all the privileges that comes with being Firstborn, So you can see why they're, they're resenting him, can't you? Notice verse 4 then. It says, When his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. They envied. Now here's the thing I want you to get. They envied their father's treatment of Joseph. What did they really want? They wanted their father's approval. They wanted their father's attention. They wanted their father's love and devotion. You know, this is really a continuation of the struggle that was going on between Rachel and Leah. Remember, Rachel and Leah were fine for, for Jacob's heart. And essentially, the brothers are doing the same thing. They're, they're fine for their father's heart. And such was the hurt and the struggle that they hated Joseph to the degree that the Bible says they could not speak peaceably unto him. Not one civil word. No affection. No affirmations. No encouragement. This was a home, friends, that was constantly hostile. It was a cauldron of envy, of bitterness, of rancor and hostility. So when Joseph walked into the room, the brothers walked out of the room. When Joseph spoke up, they shut him up. When every word was spoken to him, it was harsh and cutting and bitter and hurtful. You can imagine what a difficult upbringing Joseph has had. And not really through no fault of his own. Let me tell you what all of this is. It's carnality. The book of James says this, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? You know, James makes the point that envy is carnality. In Galatians, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. And he lists them. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and so on. And he comes to this verse 21, he says, Envyings, 
He puts envyings on that list of, of carnal and fleshly works. You see, what you see in Jacob's home is what you see throughout many of the Bible stories. It's, it's like Saul envying David because he's popular with the people. It's rather like the weary workers who envied the full payment that was given to the man who came out onto the field in the 11th hour in Jesus' account. It's like the prodigal's brother who resents the younger son coming home and is agitated at the slaying of the fatted calf and the party being thrown for him. It's envy. And the Bible says this of the Christian, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity loves Envieth not. You know, you as I as Christians ought to have no place for envy in our hearts or envy in our lives. You see, as long as you're envying, you're not loving. And as long as you're loving, you can't possibly be envying. Envy is the sister of hatred. And we see that here in the attitudes and actions of Joseph's brothers. Notice in verse 5 then, not only his father's devotion, but his brother's disdain. It says, and Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about, and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, <coughs> What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. Now if you know anything about Joseph at all, you'll know that he's known for his dreams. And most of us don't really put too much uh, stock in dreams, uh, and rightly so. Those who seek to interpret dreams today are, uh, well, they're just too superstitious by far. God isn't speaking to us by means of dreams today. God's will is revealed to us in the 66 books of the Bible. And that's what you rely on for the revelation of God. But in Bible times and in ancient cultures, dreams had intellectual, ethical, and spiritual significance. Often in Scripture, in the early parts of Scripture, God's will was revealed through dreams. Abimelech, king of Gerar, was warned in a dream concerning Sarah, Abraham's wife. Uh, Jacob, if you recall, saw that ladder uh, that pointed to heaven and to the Lord Jesus Christ in a dream. Uh, following their rebellion against Moses' authority, God declared to Miriam and Aaron, If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will speak unto him in a dream. God first spoke to Solomon in a dream. Mary and Joseph fled from Israel to Egypt as the consequence of a dream. God was revealing truth through dreams. And so Joseph's dream is just not a case of having had too much pizza late at night. Joseph's dream was prophetic. I'm sure you're all familiar with the musical that is very loosely based on Joseph's life. If you've seen it, it's horrendous. But nevertheless, if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with that musical, uh, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, the key song is, Any Dream Will Do. Well, any dream won't do. 
Joseph wasn't dreaming any dream. Joseph was getting a revelation from God. This was God's word to Joseph in a time in which there was no Bible available to be read. And what a word it was. In the dream, he's out in the field with his brothers harvesting corn and they're binding sheaves when suddenly Joseph's sheaf stands upright. And as his sheaf stands upright, the sheaves of his brothers bow down uh, before him and they reverence him and they honor him. In other words, God was saying to Joseph, Joseph, you're going to have the most remarkable future. And it's very significant, actually, that this dream revolved around crops. Remember, his brothers were sheep farmers. They weren't involved with grain and crops and corn and so on. They were sheep farmers. But this is a dream, this is a dream about grain. And at the end of the story, what happens? What happens is that Joseph is in charge of the grain stock of Egypt. And his brothers come, not knowing who he is. And they bow before him, asking for grain. This wasn't a, a fanciful thought. This was, there wasn't a word of a lie in all that Joseph said when he relayed the dream to them. He was giving them God's word. He was speaking God's truth unto them. Now, if relations between Joseph and his brothers had been strained before, well, this dream brings that relationship to breaking point. You see, the brothers didn't quite receive the dream With the same measure of enthusiasm that Joseph had for it. In fact the Bible says they hated him yet the more. Do you see that? They hated him yet the more. Now here's friends I want you to learn this fact well. Some people in life are always going to hate you for speaking the truth. You hear what I say? Some people in life are always going to hate you for speaking the truth. Now I want to say to you. That, you know, as a preacher of the gospel, it's my job, it's the job of every preacher of the gospel, to speak the truth. In season, out season, the Bible says. It doesn't matter whether it's accepted in society or rejected in society. It doesn't matter whether people like it or dislike it. It doesn't matter whether they accept it or reject it. We have to preach the truth. And one of the problems we have in our country today is that we have preachers and churches that are trying to make themselves popular with the world. Trying to get the world to like them. Dressing like the world and acting like the world and playing the world's music and, and, and really doing nothing more than Sunday morning entertainment in the name of Christ. But friends, that's not gospel preaching. Because a true gospel preacher is going to make enemy. You know, a true gospel preacher is going to find some people who will dislike what he has to say. A true gospel people, preacher is going to find even people who will hate him. They resent the message of the cross. They despise its narrow and exclusive demands. And they transfer their animosity toward the truth to the believer who is sharing that truth. Think of the words of the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 15. He says this, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. You know what that's called? That's called anger transferal. You see, here's the thing. The husband has a bad day at the office. He comes in and he shouts at his wife because the dinner's burnt. The wife's annoyed the husband shouted at her, so she kicks the dog. The dog, the dog chases the cat. The cat kills the mouse. Everybody's upset. 
And that's what's going on here. You know, people aren't mad at you. They're mad at the Lord. They're not hating you when you share the truth. They're hating the Lord. It's the Lord's truth. You know, and when you think about it, when the people demanded a king instead of judges and prophets during the time of Samuel and the Lord reveals to Samuel it's time to appoint a king, he says to him, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. He says, Samuel, the problem isn't with you, son. The problem is with me. It's not you they really hate. It's me they really hate. You know, Paul asked the Galatians, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Am I become your enemy? Why? Because I tell you the truth. How often are God's servants hated? Not because of who they are, but because of what they have to say. Look with me in 1 Kings chapter 18 for a moment. 1 Kings chapter 18. Here we have the conflict between Ahab and Elijah. And of course there's been three and a half years of drought in the land and Ahab has been very keen to find Elijah and to get to the root of the problem. And when he encounters Elijah in verse 17, notice Ahab's words. It says, It come to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? <laughs> and notice what Elijah respond, how he responds. He answered, I have not troubled Israel but thou and thy father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed, followed Balaam. You see what Ahab said? He said, why are you such a pain? You know, you, you the fellow who's given me trouble. Why can't you just go along with what we're doing here? Why have you got to always be contrary to everything? And there's some people who think that about you. There's some people who think that about me. Look in chapter 22 of 1 Kings. Chapter 22 and verse 8. One of my favorite accounts is the story of Jehoshaphat and Ahab and how they made an alliance to go against the king of Syria. And in the midst of this allegiance, Jehoshaphat, who was a godly king, suggested that maybe they should consult a prophet. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ahab, he has all of these prophets, false prophets, in his pocket. But notice he has this one prophet that simply won't play the game. And in verse, uh, verse 8 here you see a reference to that prophet. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, that is Ahab, when Jehoshaphat requests a prophet, he says, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But watch his words. But I hate him, for he hath not prophesied good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. He says, oh, it's not that way at all. See what old Ahab said about this prophet? He says, I hate him because he always prophes- he never prophesies good toward me. He always prophesies evil. He's never anything good to say. It's always negative. And so they go ahead and they call Micaiah out of prison where Ahab had thrown him. And they said, you know, uh, Ahab says, well, go ahead and prophesy. We're going to go to battle against the king of Syria. What have you got to say about it? Uh, you know, you're always negative. You're always against me. You're always, you never have anything good to say. And so Micaiah, in a very sarcastic way, says, well, the Lord says, go ahead. You're going to just do fine. You're going to be great. It's all going to go your way. <laughs> and Ahab picks up on the note of sarcasm. And he says, that's not it at all. Tell me the truth. He says, the truth is you're going to die. <laughs> he told him the truth. But Micaiah hated him for it. Or, or sorry, Ahab hated Micaiah for it. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Second Chronicles chapter 24. You see what I'm saying to you? 
People will always hate you. There will always be people who will hate you because you tell them the truth. Because you stand for what's right. In uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse 19. It says, Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. You see that? Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiad his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he, said, when he died, he said, The Lord look upon it, and he require it. The Lord Jesus will refer to that later on in Matthew chapter 23. But let's look in chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. Chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. Verse 15. It says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up at times and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. You see how again and again and again people despised the truth of God's word and they despised those who brought the truth of God's word. Listen, I would suggest to you, if you're not making some enemies in this world, you're really not probably being a true witness to the Lord Jesus because you'll, you'll automatically make enemies. If you will speak up for Christ, you're going to make enemies. If you'll speak up for Christ, then everybody's going to be your friend. Then everybody's going to want to have you at the party. Not everybody's going to want you to be there among the company. There are some people who are going to hate you, who will not speak peaceably unto you. It's the cost of discipleship. Look in Acts chapter 7, verse 52. Verse 51. Let's read from verse 51. Actually, we'll read down to verse 54. Here's the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And in this chapter, he rehearses the entirety almost of Israelite history. And he shows again and again that the Israelites had been hard-hearted and that they had resisted the prophet and they had resisted God. And in verse 51, he says that you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain from which showed they before of the coming of the just one. Of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Notice verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. They hated him. They hated his sermon. They hated the fact that he pointed out their sins. You see, if you will just preach the love of God all the time and never talk about sin and never talk about judgment and if you talk about heaven all the time and never talk about hell, the world's going to love you. But if you'll preach against sin, if you'll call sin, sin, if you'll preach heaven blissfully, heaven is a place of bliss and hell is a a place of damnation, the world is going to hate you. Listen to what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23. 
Matthew 23 and verse 31. He says, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them that killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, and ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, going all the way back to Genesis 4, unto the blood of Zechariah, whom we just read of, son of Zechariah, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Jesus basically says to them, listen, from Genesis to Revelation, you're guilty of hearing those who preach the truth. And we see that in Joseph's life. He told them the dream about the sheaves. He wasn't being a braggart. He wasn't standing there and being pompous and presumptuous. He wasn't trying to, you know, pull a number on them. He was saying, look, God has revealed something to me. God has shown me there's coming a day somewhere out there in the future where you're going to come and you're going to buy to me. And this is somehow related to crops. And they hated him all the more. And then God gave him another dream. Look at verse 9 of chapter 37. Genesis 37, verse 9. says he dreamed another he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and behold and said behold I have dreamed a dream more behold the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me and he told it to his father and to his brethren and, and said unto them what is this dream that thou hast dreamed shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth and his brethren envied him but his father observed the saying well, you talk about adding fuel to the fire. You know, if he upset them the first time, he doubly upset them the second time. This dream was far more encompassing than the first dream. Not only now was it about his brothers, but also included his father and his mother, who at this point presumably is Leah, seeing that Rachel is dead. They were all going to come and bow before him. And the dream is not now agricultural, but it's celestial. It's not now of sheaves of corn but of the sun and the moon and the stars. You know, if the first dream conveyed that all the resources of the world would be placed under Joseph's disposal, the second dream conveys that all the rulers of the world would come and bow before him. You see, that's what the sun and the moon and the stars represent. You go back into the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, and you find the sun is a star that is given to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. It relates to rulership. Now there are some who criticize Joseph on this point and they say, well, having got such a resentful reaction in the first dream, he was foolhardy to share the second dream. But let me say this to you, friends. Don't relax your testimony just because people don't like it. You hear what I say? Don't relax your testimony just because people don't like it. Just because somebody said they didn't want to hear it the first time don't, doesn't mean you shouldn't tell it to them a second time. take for example the witness of Jeremiah and Jeremiah was a tremendous servant of the Lord and like all true preachers his message didn't always sit well with his hearers you know his own family stood up and spoke out against him 
The priests wanted him executed. The religious crowd wanted him put to death. He was thrown into prison. Jeremiah's ministry was one long record of persecution and trouble as a consequence of telling the truth. Let me ask you, did Jeremiah ever feel like giving up? Did he ever feel like being quiet? Did he ever feel like somehow or other he wasn't helping himself? Sure he did. Look at Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 7. Look at his complaint against God. He comes before the Lord and he says, Lord, you've deceived me. You called me into the ministry. You didn't tell me people were going to hate me. You didn't tell me I was going to be a subject of ridicule. You didn't tell me I was going to be mocked and derided. Listen to what he says. He says, verse 7, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I. He says, God, you're smarter and stronger than me. He says, and, and thou hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. I remember when I was first saved, what a, what a sea change there was in the attitude of my workmates and colleagues toward me. Before I was saved, life and soul of the party. Before I was saved, went everywhere with them all. After I was saved, uninvited. After I was saved, I would open the drawer of my desk and find pornography spread open in the, in the drawer of my desk. After I was saved, I found people swearing and cursing in my face, purposefully knowing that I was a Christian. And that's where Jeremiah was. He said, every day is the same thing. Ever since I gave my heart to you, Lord, all I get is derision and mockery and ridicule, and I've had enough of it. He says, for since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil. That is, he cried judgment upon the land because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. He says, I'm done witnessing with people, witnessing the people. I'm done sharing God's truth. It's brought me nothing but trouble. And so he shuts up for a while. But then as verse 9, it continues. It says this. But... His word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones and I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. He says, I just had to tell them the truth. Whether they liked it or whether they didn't like it, I had to tell them the truth. You see, Jeremiah didn't relax his testimony because people hated him and did not like him. Think about the example of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 2, as Ezekiel is called, God tells him from the very off that there are going to be people who are not going to appreciate his message. And he says in verse 6 and 7 of Ezekiel 2, And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, your hearers, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among court scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. Thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. You know, I have an opportunity Monday week to go and preach the gospel to a, to a room full of lost men. There's going to be about 40 lost men, hard men, in this room. It's not a church service. These men have been called specifically together so that I can preach the gospel to them. Tremendous opportunity, and I would appreciate your prayers. But you know what? I know full well I'm going into the lion's den in some respects. I'm not going into the church hall. I'm not going into a hall where everybody's going to say, Oh, Pastor, that was a, that was a great message. No. We're stopping into the devil's territory now. 
And I know there's going to be people that are going to resent it. And people are there who's not going to want to hear it. And they're going to give me some harsh looks along the way. But you know what? I've just got to speak God's words. And Ezekiel didn't relax his testimony just because there were people who didn't like it. You think about Peter and John, how they were called before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, the earliest days of the church. And the, <coughs> and the Jews, the Jewish leaders are upset with them because they've been preaching the gospel. And they take them and they beat them and they say this to them. <coughs> Verse 18 says, They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. And I love their answer. Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. He said, You're not going to shut us up. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus because it makes you unhappy. We're not going to, we're not going to retreat and withdraw. We're not going to just close our Bibles and go home and have a quiet prayer meeting. No, listen, we're going to preach Christ. I love that. Do you ever hear the story of old Dr. Bernardo? You know Bernardo's charity, the children's charity, was begun by a Christian man. A good and godly man, a brethren man who was an evangelist on the streets of Dublin. Dr. Bernardo, his story is amazing. You should take the time and learn about Dr. Bernardo. And on one occasion, he goes into a pub in Dublin. And he gets up on the table and he preaches the gospel in this pub. And so incensed are his hearers that they take him and they throw him literally out in the street. And he gets knocked out in the gutter in the street. And he came to, found himself face down in the old damp street of Dublin. And what did he do? He stood up, brushed himself down. Went back into the pub, stood on the table, and gave him the second point of his sermon. That's a true preacher. That's a true preacher. You know, these boys with their soft clothes, sitting in their air conditioned offices, enjoying their big salaries, reverent this and most reverent that, and all the rest. Oh my goodness, what has become of the church of God? You think about Paul and Silas, Acts chapter 16, you know the story well. They're thrown into prison for preaching the gospel in Philippi. Acts chapter 16, verse 23, it says, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they beat them. They cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. I love it. When I was a pastor at Bray Hill, we had a Sunday school class. The teacher was teaching this particular passage and uh, she said to the boys and girls how that later on in the story, the Lord brings a, an earthquake and all the gates of the prison are opened. And she says, and what do you think the prisoners did, boys and girls? What do you think Paul and Silas did? And of course, she's wanting them to say that they ran out of the prison, that they ran away. And of course, that's not what they do. So he says, what do you think Paul and Silas did? You know, given that they've been so badly beaten and they've been locked up and they've been in stocks and chains, what do you think they did? And as we hand went up with a Belfast accent and says, Miss, did they claim compensation? <laughs> well, they didn't claim compensation. Here's what they did do. Verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. 
What are they in prison for? They're in prison for preaching. They're in prison for proclaiming Christ. They're, they've been beaten and incarcerated and put in stocks and chains and they're sitting in some dark, dank cell but they refuse to shut up. Instead, they sing praises to God. They said, I'm not going to shut up because you hate me. I'm not going to shut up because you want me to shut up. No, 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 no. Listen, I'm not going to relax my testimony because you don't like it. I'm not here to be liked. I'm not here to be loved. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Friends, that's what it's about. And how soon we give up. You know, the slightest discouragement. You know, the smallest frown. A little name. Somebody calls you a Bible basher. Oh, I can't possibly talk to them anymore. Seriously? You're going to let a little, a little slight like that put you off? There are Christians around the world who are being beaten within an inch of their lives who still testify thereafter. And you and I are going to give up speaking about Jesus because somebody frowned at me and used some silly name. Well, the first look of displeasure, the first sign of opposition, the first word of resistance, and what? We close down. May God help us. May God help us to be more like Joseph, who told his first dream as the word of God. And though they hated him, he told the second dream as the word of God. Help us to be like Jeremiah, who was beaten and punched and thrown into prison. And yet with all, despite the daily derision and the mockery, says, I, I have to speak. His word was within me as a burning flame. Let us be like Ezekiel who doesn't care that the people look at him as briars and thorns and scorpions, but continues to tell them the word of God. Let us be like Peter and John who say, I can't help but tell you about Jesus. It's what we do. It's what's on our heart. It's who we are. Let us be like Paul and Silas who sang praises in the night. Let's not relax our preaching of the truth even if some people don't like it. You don't like it? Too bad. I'm going to go on preaching it anyway. You know, there's coming a day and it's not very far down the line, I think, when the government is going to put restrictions on preachers. And they're going to say, you can't preach on this anymore. You can't say homosexuality is a sin anymore. You can't say anything about transgenders anymore. You're not allowed to talk about abortion anymore. And, and no more of this conversion. You're going to have to learn to get along with people. You'll stop preaching about conversion. You know what we're going to do? We're going to keep preaching the book. We're going to keep preaching the book. Because no matter who sits on the throne... Of England, there's one who sits on a higher throne who rules over all. Well, as we conclude this morning, let's bring our hearts before the Lord and ask His Holy Spirit to search us. First of all, let's ask, am I guilty like Joseph's brothers of envying someone? Maybe somebody at home or at work or at church or even in society, are you envious of someone? Ask the Lord to deal with you about it. Are you envious of their position or their personality or their popularity? 
or their pay packet or their possessions or their potential? Are you envious even of their presence that when they come into a room, immediately attention is drawn to them? Do you envy them? They're prettier than you. They're cleverer than you. They're more talented than you. They're more loved than you are. They have more friends, more money, more influence than you. Friends, envy indicates this quiet with God's dealings with us. It says to God, listen, Lord, I deserve better. I deserve more than what you're giving me. And so envy is just a work of the flesh. And we need to put it to death, mortify it. And what about our witness? Are we staying quiet instead of speaking up? Because speaking up is going to cause us problems. Because if we speak up, people will hate us even more. Have we then shut up? Have we allowed the devil to silence us at work? Silence us in school? Silence us in our community? Silence us at the family table? Maybe there is someone who you've witnessed to in the past who reacted badly to it. Maybe there is somebody who really dislikes you. You know what? I told you earlier about my first experience when I got saved, how that I went from being the life and soul of the party to being a, a, a target, a, a hate figure almost, in that, among that same group of people. But I'll tell you something. Every one of those men who gave me a hard time, when they met me out in the print room on their own, every one of them, to a man, said... Actually, you know what? I respect the fact that you stand for what you believe in. So even if people are publicly critical of you, that doesn't mean to say that they won't ultimately give you a hearing. Friends, don't allow the enemy to shut you up. Don't stop speaking up for Jesus. Speak up for the Lord, whatever the cost. What do we say? Honor him. And what? He will honor you. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts.